I'm going to invite Olivia to read this morning's passage. We're in Luke's Gospel. It's Passion Week, and I'm very excited about that. So if you have a Bible, Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, is where she's going to read to you from. When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, The owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their clothes on the colt. And they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then, as he was now drawing near to the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called out to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. You know, I was reminded this week of a conversation I had just over a year ago with our youngest, Declan. I'd asked her, if you had a genie who gave you three, three wishes, what would your three wishes be? And she responded rather confidently, a new dress, new shoes, and new pants. I asked her the question to try to help her to whittle down what seemed like this unending list of must-haves that she developed for her birthday. The hope was that she'd just give me three items that we could purchase to make it all easy, but I found myself when she answered it kind of chuckling because I thought if you could really shoot for the stars, Declan, the best you've got is that you want just a new dress, new shoes, and new pants. I mean, you and I, because we've lived a little more life than Declan, we'd, we'd quickly probably sit down next to her and try to get her to rethink this game plan. Like, you get three things, anything, which I'm not promising is her dad, but, but if this fictitious situation were actual reality, I mean, what would you ask for? As adults who've lived more life, we'd say we'd shoot a little higher than just a new dress, new pants, and a pair of new shoes. We'd shoot for something bigger and better. And the truth is, if I kept asking Declan that same question every year as she got older, if you had a genie in a bottle and you could ask for three things, what would it be? She'd answer differently, wouldn't she? The list would morph and change undoubtedly. As she'd get older, she'd start to wish for things like a driver's license and then a car of her own, and then to pass that class, and then for her dad to let her go on a first date, and then to get into that college, and then to land her dream job, and then to get into that dream home and that perfect neighborhood, and then to find a spouse, a partner, and then maybe even to have a child. But inevitably, 
She'll find herself later in life beginning to wish for an opportunity to get out from under or out of that toxic work atmosphere at the dream job she had longed to be at. It'll be her longing and wishing to get out from under the debt that that target school had brought her into. It'll be her wishing to get out of the the bad deal that she made on the lemon of a car that she just had to have and has only caused her heartache and problems. It'll in the future be that she'll just wish for a day of quiet in a dark room without children pulling at her every moment of the day. She'll wish for something as simple as a good night's sleep. I mean, track with me, think about it. What I've come to realize is that if we live long enough, it's not just that our list of must-haves is evolving and changing. The truth is that over time it becomes self-defeating, doesn't it? Where the very things that we feel that we have to have, we now find ourselves wanting out from under and honestly nothing to do with at all. We end up canceling ourselves out completely. You'd probably agree with me that humanity's biggest problem might not be, in the words of the Rolling Stones, that we can't always get what we want. Humanity's biggest problem is that the truth is we don't really know what we want. Because when we get what we want, we find out that it's not at all what we actually needed. And we began to wish and dream for it to get out of our life and leave us alone. The problem is that the truth is, we don't know what we actually need. We don't know what's actually best for us. We don't even know what we should really even be wishing for. Now, I'm really comfortable making those observations about other people outside of me. I'm less likely, it's, it's more painful for me to admit that this is true about myself, but it's most painful for me to admit that this is even true about my faith. That this brokenness and, and my inability to really know what I need and, and to really ask for the right thing even carries over into my relationship with God himself. Because the truth is that it's so deep-seated that it begins to even seep into the kind of God and Savior that I'm wishing that I had. You see, our story today is going to illustrate this well for us. Because our story today is about heaven's triumphant king. And if you know the story, unfortunately, he's not the kind of king humanity was looking for. He may have even been heaven's answer, but the truth is he wasn't really humanity's request at all. I mean, think about this with me. What kind of savior, what kind of king, what kind of Jesus do you wish for? I'd suggest that it's possible that our discouragement might be betraying us and revealing the true kind of savior and king that we've actually wished for. I mean, think about it this way. For so many of us, we were crushed when we realized that our Savior and King is not an online marketplace where we can find the answer to our every want and need. He's no Amazon. It's that we were crushed and disappointed when we realized that he wasn't some cosmic pill caddy that gave us a quick and easy solution and answer for all that ailed us. No, neither did we find that he was a district attorney who he'd send after every person and every place that had wounded us. That's not what he'd function as. Oh, we had hoped for some of us that he was a cruise ship, and we know that it's true because we were crushed when we realized that he was anything but a promise of detachment from real life, where now I have no real challenges following me as the ship leaves the shore, all aboard with Team Jesus, and all of your problems are left behind. We just found that it's not true, is it? 
Well, for many of us, we're crushed when we realize that he's not a political leader or a, an elected official who exists to represent me and my ideals, nor does he exist to legislate holiness and right behavior in our community. Oh, our disappointment has a way of betraying us and showing us the kind of king we actually were wishing for, the kind of savior we are actually wanting. Oh, what kind of savior, what kind of king, what kind of Jesus do you wish for? You see, our story today is about the arrival of heaven's king, and it serves as a reminder that he was not the kind of king humanity was expecting. Can I get nerdy with me? Let me paint the backdrop for you from what historians tell us about this. Because historians make it really clear that Jesus would not have been the only individual who makes a grand entrance into the city of Jerusalem on the week of Passover. Historians reference that Pontius Pilate, who was appointed by the Roman government, uh, ancient inscriptions found in the region that he lived, referred to him as the prefect or the governor over Judea. It's clear to us, though, that he did not reside in Jerusalem. Instead, he did what most of us would do if money was not an option, and he lived on the coast in a community called Caesarea Marentine. And he would, according to historians, though, travel to the city of Jerusalem, which was the city center of the region that he oversaw, every year at the high holy days, at the feast times. And the reason he would go there is he'd show up with his heavy hand and military presence to help to keep the peace in the midst of these massive celebrations where people, the people of God, are celebrating God's faithfulness and care and provision and promise of deliverance for his people. And so he'd make his way with all his pomp and splendor into Jerusalem as a show of force that you better not get any big ideas right now about rebelling. See, Pilate also would have entered the city the week surrounded by multitudes and mass hysteria. He's coming to Jerusalem because of Passover. We know that. Now, you, you need to understand that to celebrate Passover while having the Romans basically have their boot on your throat would be like us celebrating the 4th of July if North Korea was occupying the United States of America. It'd be a weird thing. I mean, it's weird enough already, like beer and fireworks and, and a hot dog eating contest are like the most iconic things in the way that Americans celebrate their independence. But can you imagine if we celebrated Independence Day while being completely not just dependent, but crushed and oppressed by another regime? It would, it would create a whole bunch of angst in us. We'd be angry and frustrated and on edge. Those are the emotions that would have been present. Yes, there was hope and there was faith, but there was angst with it that these people are remembering God's deliverance, but at the same time longing for it to be true again. Remember that Passover took place in the spring on the 14th day of the month of Nisan. It's the very day that Jesus, the Passover lamb, would give his life as a ransom for many. It would begin this, this day where Jesus is entering into the city of Jerusalem. This begins his final week of his life, something that the whole world is commemorating this week, followers of Jesus around the globe. You see, Passover was this commemorative feast that Jesus was traveling back to Jerusalem for. It was a commemorative feast looking back to God's past tense deliverance of his people through miraculous means and signs of wonders through Moses as he'd lead them out of, Je out of Egypt, ridding them of their oppressors. Remember that that final plague, that tenth plague, was that an angel would pass over every home, bringing judgment and taking the life of the oldest child in that home. 
unless the blood of an innocent sacrifice and substitute was placed and spread over the doorpost, the frame of that home, then the judgment of God would pass over the house. This amazing picture and portrait of Jesus, as John the baptizer would call him, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. It's Passover, and the city is full. It's pregnant with with pilgrims who have traveled to be there. This crowd is full of anticipation and even some angst with it as they look back in commemoration of God's faithfulness to deliver them from their oppressors and where they also bring all of their hopes and all of their prayers and all of their tears looking ahead in anticipation to a day where God would once again hear their prayers and send a deliverer like Moses again. But what they failed to remember was that there was no deliverance without their first being the shedding of blood, of the innocent substitute and sacrifice. Their search for their Moses would leave them guilty of overlooking their lamb who first had to be slain. And here comes that lamb, the story tells us, Jesus. As he enters into the city of Jerusalem, we know that he's surrounded by his disciples. Also traveling with him are people that he's healed, who followed him, crowds of people from Galilee who either had been healed by him or had witnessed some of his miracles are traveling with the entourage of Jesus. Bartimaeus, the blind man that he had healed just days before in Jericho, is present with him and those who saw the miracle take place, testifying to Jesus' miraculous power. Oh, think of the words of the ancient prophet Isaiah in chapter 35, where he prophesied about Israel's future deliverance and glory, and he said it this way. He said, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. It wasn't just Lazarus, or it wasn't just Bartimaeus, but even Lazarus, John's gospel tells us, is present with Jesus. The one that he had raised from the dead. John's gospel even tells us that some of the religious leaders begin to be convinced that maybe Jesus is Messiah because they saw him who was dead made alive again. How could someone do even more than the prophets had foretold and promised? Oh, he's surrounded by crowds of people who are beginning to believe that maybe, just maybe, this is the one. And then quite possibly the biggest shift in Jesus' earthly life and ministry takes place in this moment. Because you remember thus far in his ministry, all throughout the Gospels, every time he'd heal someone or even interact with a demon, he would tell them to not tell anyone who he really was. Do you remember it's his friends saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, and what does he tell them? Well, he says, well, flesh and blood didn't reveal it to you, but it was the Spirit of God. But then he said, but don't tell anybody about it just yet, because my time has not yet come. It's when he'd heal the leper at the beginning of the Gospels that he'd tell him just that, my time has not yet come. Don't go and tell anyone what's just happened to you. It's when he's driving demons out, and the demons respond saying, you are the Christ. And he says, shush, you're quiet. Now is not my time. But now is his time. This is that moment where now Jesus will purposefully, publicly reveal himself as the great 
Mashiach, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one sent with the power of heaven from heaven to the earth to rescue humanity. He's revealing himself now as a king. You see this incredible moment that's recorded in all four of the Gospels, a moment that Christians all over the globe are observing and remembering today. We call it his triumphal entry. Because Jesus, our triumphant king, is entering into the city of of Jerusalem, the city of peace, one last time to do one simple thing, one miraculous thing, to give his life as a ransom for many. And to prove his identity by rising from the grave. Oh, but remember, Jesus was not the only one entering the city of Jerusalem that day. Pilate also would have entered the city that week surrounded by multitudes in mass hysteria. Pilate comes from the west while Jesus comes in from the eastern gate. Pilate, we're told by historians, would enter the city riding a white stallion, a war horse. Jesus, however, the four Gospels are very clear. He comes in on the back of a donkey. It's a a symbol of peace. And Rome and many other ancient civilizations, to ride in on a white horse on a war horse was a statement made by emperors or generals or important, powerful individuals. Whereas Jesus, though, arrives hopping on the back of a donkey, an animal that seems suited for a child and not for a king. For a leader or a king to ride into the city on the back of a war horse was a statement of war. But on a donkey was a statement that they came in humility for peace. O Pilate came with a sword, with power and intimidation. Jesus comes armed with nothing. Pilate would enter surrounded by an army, whereas Jesus is surrounded by misfits, by beggars and blind men and outcasts who have been so moved by Jesus' compassion for them. Pilate comes to impress and oppress others. Jesus comes to give his life as a ransom for many. Remember what he said. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, some modern commentators will suggest that maybe those two entrances took place simultaneously, which may give us a hint and a clue as to why Jesus and his disciples were not rounded up in this very moment to be arrested for their act of treason, for claiming that Jesus was a king. Okay, so I want to do this with you. I want to view this story now through four different lenses or four different angles. I want you to view the story in light of four different time frames. The first is as if you're a person standing there in that moment. View the story with me in light of the present moment of when this happened in real time in view of those who are the onlookers who that very day were making their pilgrimage back to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. Those who were oppressed under Roman rule, who were so helpful and in so much waiting in anticipation for a deliverer and king. This was not some lifeless crowd that's just walking along and then they get crazy out of nowhere. No, remember, traveling from the region of the Galilee, Jesus is surrounded by people who are familiar with his teaching and his miracles. He's publicly healed a blind Bartimaeus in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies. And with him is Bartimaeus and also Lazarus, the one that he raised from the dead, and those who saw the whole thing go, go down and are testifying of him. And then Jesus hops on a donkey and instantly poof, the crowd explodes. 
They're waiting for their king, and in this moment, they're believing that he has arrived. They begin to then quote and to sing Psalm 118, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now. Save now. But why? Why of all the things, was it Jesus sitting on a donkey that all of a sudden made everyone burst into song and feel confident that they knew who he was, that they were welcoming their king? Well, it's because it's not the first time this has happened in the pages of scriptures where a king enters into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. This is something that Solomon would do as he would succeed his father, King David, in the ancient Hebrew scriptures when he would be cor- uh, receive his coronation as the rightful king over Israel. He would ride into the city of Jerusalem uh, along that same pathway atop a donkey rather than atop a horse. It was this humble imagery that Solomon wanted the people to see a humble and approachable king, not some powerful, oppressive ruler. And Jesus here is giving that same humble imagery. He's portraying really a living parable, Jesus is, fulfilling prophetic imagery in this moment. I'll quote to you from Zechariah 9. that The prophet had said this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king, he comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fell of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The imagery and allegory, it was not wasted, nor was it overlooked by the people that gathered that day. They recognized what Jesus was saying. They recognized who Jesus is clearly claiming to be in fulfillment of prophecy when he hopped on the back of that donkey to enter into the city of Jerusalem. I think to fully grasp the weight of the story, you need to view it in light of that present moment. But we also need to have an understanding of of the previous one, to view it not just in light of the present moment, those who stood there, but in light of the past, the information, the knowledge they had of what the ancient Hebrew scriptures had already told them. They no doubt understood the imagery of the moment that there was Jesus, God's promised deliverer and king, enter into Jerusalem to bring peace. Did you catch what it says? The prophet Zechariah said that they will break the bows in half, that the times of war are over. We don't need to fight any longer. That that's what God was promising, that, that heaven's deliverer would come and bring an unending era of peace. And so there they look towards Jesus, gathered, lining the streets, laying out palm branches, laying down their coats onto the ground. Jesus receives a hero's, a king's welcome in that moment. The widely known teacher and even the, 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 the very popular healer in Jesus, in some ways even someone who was a local hero because he stood against publicly the religious oppressive system and he called them out as being hypocrites. Oh, now that one, as he's entering the city, the way that he did on a donkey, he's making a clear identity statement to all who gathered. And I believe even they understood a clear purpose statement. They understood it, that Jesus is here to save us from our oppressors. Jesus is here to be our new king. Jesus is here to to do what the prophets had promised and foretold, to establish everlasting peace. 
Oh, they hoped for a king who would be as fierce as a lion going out attacking their oppressors, the Romans. But what entered the city of Jerusalem that day was the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, the Passover Lamb. Oh, he would strip our greater enemy of his crown of sin, sickness, suffering, and death. You see, this moment, it's reminiscent of where long ago in Israel's past, God would anoint a new king to overthrow the most wicked leaders that the nation of Israel had ever had. This ancient king named Ahab, and you might remember his wife's name, her name was Jezebel. And in 2 Kings chapter 9, the prophet Elisha sent one of his apprentices to anoint a new king. His name was Jehu. And when the young prophet departed, Jehu's friends run up to him and say, what in the world is going on? Why did the prophet send his servant into your tent? And Jehu says, 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 12, here is what he told me. This is what the Lord says, I anoint you king over Israel. And his friends, they quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpets and shouted, Jehu is king. You see, for the people in Jesus' story to take off their garments and lay them down was to make a statement that they were in agreement that God's provision here is of a new king to overthrow the wicked leadership that they were subject to. It's a statement that, God, we believe that this is what you're doing and we are willing to submit ourselves to it. We're on board with it. Now, if you know Jehu's story, Jesus and Jehu couldn't be more different. Yes, they're different in that Jesus rolls into the city on the back of a donkey, gentle and lowly, whereas Jehu, it says, he's the only guy in the Bible that it says he was recognized because of the reckless nature of his driving, which is just a classic descriptor of somebody, that he drove his chariot furiously, and from afar off, people were like, that's got to be him because he's out of control. But even more so, Jesus and Jehu are different because Jehu would arrive and go on a rampage, shedding blood to overthrow the previous regime, whereas Jesus will enter the city somewhat anticlimactically, won't he? Because he refuses to raise a sword, and instead Jesus would shed his own blood to overthrow the previous regime that existed in power. But as a spoiler alert, you know that if you fast forward to the end of the week, these very people who are lining the streets right now, throwing their cloaks down and, and yelling and singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us now. By the end of the week, it'll be these same people who are crying out, crucify him. Because Jesus' deliverance was not going to be what they had hoped that it would be. He would not overthrow every crooked regime that existed in power over them. Instead, what he came to do in this arrival was to liberate all people from the dominance of Satan and sin's rule. You see, by Jesus in this moment, true freedom would be purchased by him. A deeper freedom than just freedom from the oppressor of Rome. A freedom that even could exist in the lives and hearts of people, even while they were oppressed, they could experience the joy of life and freedom, even under the corruption of a terrible ruling power and authority. I think for us to understand the story, we've got to think through it as if we were present there in that moment, but also think it through in light of the past, the ancient prophetic imagery for this moment, but I think it's also important that we understand this story in light of the future, too. 
You see, Jesus gave his mission statement for his first arrival, for his first advent. It's something I quoted to you earlier from Mark 10, 45, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, one of the tricky things about prophecy, though, in the Old Testament prophets is that there is this dual nature and purpose of the promised Messiah in prophecy. Because the prophets had foretold of a suffering servant who would come and give his life as a ransom. You should think of Psalm 22 and Isaiah 52 and 53 and many other ancient passages that talked about him coming in submission and giving himself and dying even, not for his own iniquity, but for the iniquity of others. But Then this dual nature exists because he would not merely be portrayed as a lamb that would suffer and be given, but he'd also be portrayed as a conquering king and final judge as the lion of the tribe of Judah. How could he be both a lamb and a lion? Both be a sacrifice given for others and in the end also a lion roaring with all authority and power over everyone. It's imagery that's beautifully coming together at the end of the book. In the book of Revelation in chapter 5 where all of that imagery of the lion and the lamb culminates in this moment where John is looking around in the heavenly realm, in this vision he's having, where he says, who is worthy? Remember, it said, who is worthy to open the scroll, which we assume to believe that it's the title deed to the earth. Who has the authority to take and to open? Who can do this? Who can rescue and redeem it all? But one then who's present in that moment near John begins to cry out and say, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And John says this in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. He says, And I looked, behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. He was told, you're going to find the lion You're going to find the lion who has the authority to do this. He alone can do it. And when he looked the direction of the one with all authority and power, he saw him as a lamb who had been slain. The way that Jesus would flex his power, his might, the way that Jesus would earn the right to redeem and restore all of creation would be by him living with meekness, not weakness, power under control, setting aside his power, coming in humanity's own skin to give himself as a ransom for many. Oh, the day of the lion will come because one day in the future, Jesus returns to this very place that this story is taking place on, to the Mount of Olives where he will come riding on a white horse. And when he arrives and sets his foot down on the earth, the Bible says that it splits the mountain in two as if creation itself is welcoming its creator and king as if the rocks are crying out. Jesus will one day return to restore creation and to bring a final judgment to the nations. He will come again as the lion of the tribe of Judah. But if he would have done that in his first arrival, come with judgment and justice, then all of us would have been condemned. But instead, Jesus came in meekness and humility so that he could take our judgment upon himself still bringing justice. 
making a way for us to be reunited with him before he comes as judge and reigning forever as king. But that day is coming. See, I think it's important that we view the story in light of those, the, the mindset of those who are present, in light of the ancient prophets even, and in light of the future ahead of us, that Jesus will return to this very scene in a very different way. But I also think it's important for us to view it in light of today. And so here's how we'll wrap up and then transition towards a time of communion where we'll approach the Lord's table together. And that's just with some thoughts, some simple application, a handful of things for you to chew on this Palm Sunday. The first is a challenge. And that's that you and I need to choose when we look at this passage and remember all that was taking place, but then also view it in light of our own lives and present circumstances. We need to choose not to give up and bail out on Jesus because of our own unmet expectations. Because that's what this crowd will do. And that's what many have done. But when you think about it, Jesus didn't fall short of their expectations. What he really did is he superseded them. They just didn't have the eyes to see it, did they? He didn't just fall short of their expectations by not overthrowing the Roman government over them. He superseded them, making a way for eternal peace to be possible. Because we know throughout history that, that it's one regime to the next, that it's one oppressive power after another, that, that for him to really end their suppression would mean for him in the future to usher in his own kingdom of eternal peace. He didn't merely fall short of their expectations. No, he superseded their expectations in that he suffered and died to secure that eternal peace for them. They needed, though, to allow Jesus to rewrite those expectations. Will you let him do the same for you today? You see, if we're honest, we'll admit that we aren't always excited about who Jesus really is and what Jesus chooses to do and not to do. The sad reality is not just back in that day that we call Palm Sunday, but even in our own lives, even today, the truth is that sometimes we'd rather have a Messiah of our own making than the one who came here, who arrived here already. We'd rather have a Messiah who'd yield to our will and wishes than a Savior and King who were requires that I yield to his will and plans. We'd wish for help building our own personal empire rather than yielding to the way he's determined to establish his own kingdom. You see, we can find ourselves standing side by side with the crowd along those streets, so happy to see Jesus, only finding ourselves very quickly changing our tune with them from Hosanna to crucify, from save us to get out of here, from rescue us to leave us alone, and that change in tune takes place when we realize that he's not the Jesus we've signed up to follow, that he's not the Jesus we really wished for. He's honestly not the Jesus we've created. But he's the Savior, and he's the King that we need. And he's also the Savior and King that we can trust. Remember the cross. Remember the cross. That's where the roots of our confidence in his goodness and his faithfulness to us are found. Please hear me with gentleness and respect, knowing that some of you are suffering greatly even this week. That we don't have an answer for why every time that we suffer. But we always know what the answer is not. The answer is never that God doesn't care. 
He cared so greatly that he came in humility as a lamb rather than a lion. That he entered the city of Jerusalem with his face set like flint, Scripture says, with determination that he was going to give his life for you and for me. We look the direction of a cross because it answers the question every time. It tells us what the answer is not. Every time that we suffer, it's never that God doesn't care. Oh, don't give up and bail out on Jesus because you have unmet expectations today. Oh, please allow Jesus to rewrite those expectations. But the second form of application is that you and I, I think from this story, are meant to remember Jesus' foreknowledge and ability to work all things together for good. Because you might have noticed the little detail in the story where Jesus has this incredible foreknowledge of what's about to happen with his disciples when they go into the city to secure a donkey for him. And this isn't because Jesus had gone in previously in the middle of the night, snuck in while no one was aware, in order for him to find the donkey's owner and to set up a rental fee and prepay it and orchestrate all of the details. Now, the reason that the gospel writers give us these details is to point to the fact that Jesus was sovereign and that what was happening was not some chaotic, tragic mess that's about to take place, where Jesus will enter Jerusalem and be betrayed and ultimately be murdered. Jesus would say it this way in John chapter 10. He says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. You see, the gospel writers here, though, took the time to highlight and point out that Jesus wanted his followers to be clear right from the moment that he entered into Jerusalem that he was very much in control, telling them this is how it's going to play out. This is what's about to happen. And I'll tell you, I think for the first century audience who would receive this gospel, who'd receive Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them telling this story, it would have been an incredible breath of fresh air for them. Because they were suffering greatly under persecution where many Christians, early followers of Jesus in the first century, are losing their lives because of their their faith and hope and testimony that they had seen Jesus alive, risen from the dead. But this story would serve as a reminder that Jesus was more than just aware of things, that he was sovereign. And not necessarily causing, but capable of using all that was happening in the story, even in their own story, even in their own life. And that might be a timely reminder for you and for me this morning. Oh, remember Jesus' foreknowledge and ability to work all things together for good. You see, this wasn't some party trick that Jesus pulls out here, like, hey, when you go look for the donkey, here's how it's going to play out. No, this was not a party trick. This was a theological statement he's making about his own sovereignty. Okay, a third thing for you to chew on in light of this story is just the simple fact that God is faithful. That God's promises always come to pass. It's not a question of if, it's only simply a question of when. You see, in Daniel 9, there's this prophetic imagery that's given hundreds of years beforehand, prophesying down to the day, the arrival of Jesus, God's promised deliverer and king, riding into Jerusalem. You see, God is faithful to his people and his promises. It's Zechariah 9.9 promising that he would ride in on a donkey to establish a reign of peace. My friends, there's also a promise that the line of the tribe of Judah will return to establish justice, to bring restoration and an unending era of peace amongst all creation. 
that is a promise that God will be faithful to just as he was faithful first in his coming to give his life as a ransom. And if that's true, here's a fourth thing. It's that he's not just faithful, but he's deeply caring. That God cares deeply for you. Luke alone, his gospel alone, records the detail in this story where Jesus breaks down and begins to weep over the city. You see, later in the week, Jesus is going to be found inside the temple, and he's angry. He's angry at the self-righteous elites. He's angry at their broken, self-righteous religious system that they've built. But in this moment, Jesus is clearly seen as compassionate and brokenhearted for those who are wandering and hurt, who are lost, who are confused and without hope. He's seen as being so full of compassion that his heart breaks as tears come as he breaks down and weeps for the city. He says, do you not know the things that make for your peace? He saw what they were missing and where it was leading. It was leading towards judgment. They were wandering as sheep without a shepherd, and it broke his heart. Another place in scripture, Jesus would say, as a mother hen longs to gather her chicks under her wings, oh, I've longed to gather you, but you wouldn't let me. If you're weary today and feeling lost and without hope, can I tell you when I look at this story, I can say with confidence, he's not mad at you, nor has he given up on you, but he may very well be weeping with and for you if that's how you find yourself today. Here's the last thing. It's that in the end, the story leaves us with a clear line in the sand about which king and kingdom you choose. You see, the story is drawing a clear line in the sand that's contrasting two kingdoms that cannot coexist. They cannot be married together. The kingdom and system of the world, as would be depicted in Pontius Pilate's arrival in pomp and splendor, and it's contrasted against Jesus' kingdom. They are mutually exclusive. It is one or it is the other. You are a part of one and removed from the other. It is either rebellion or obedience. It is either pride or humility. It is either entitlement or mercy. It is either materialism or generosity. It is either intimidation or gentleness, either power or meekness, a horse or a donkey, a sword or a cross. And this is not what it takes to make it into Jesus' kingdom. This is how we are called to live then as citizens whose place in the kingdom was purchased and secured by Jesus already. Or as we looked at in Galatians, in our journey through Galatians just last week, that there's a a difference between the works of the flesh and the fruit of God's spirit at work in your life. My friends, today we remember Heaven's unexpected answer to humanity's cry was heaven's unlikely king to reign forever over humanity. And he'd first arrive, when you think back to his birth, in the womb of his mother atop the back of a donkey, entering into the humble village of Bethlehem. With no place of their own, so the newborn baby we'd know as Jesus would be laid upon a bed of straw. What beautiful, humble imagery that no one would be lower than him, that no one would be beneath his reach because he would enter in the lowest of ways, in the lowest of forms. But now we watch 
And remember, Jesus, the king of the universe, entering the great city of Jerusalem, but he does it still atop a humble donkey. His whole life, he would remain as a man without a home or a place to lay his, his head. And again, we'd see clearly that no one, no single person would be any lower than him, beneath him or beneath his reach. This time, though, it's not straw that would be there to greet him, but a crown of thorns as Jesus, our king, would be enthroned upon a cross. You know, Jesus had said that he had to suffer, that he had to do this. It wasn't just a payment, but what God did in that moment is he made an eternal demonstration. That's what Romans calls it. In Romans chapter 5, it says that God demonstrated something in that moment. He demonstrated actually at least two things. One of them is that he demonstrated just how sinful and fallen this broken world system really is. I mean, think about just how broken it is, how this will demonstrate it for us. The only perfect man to ever grace the earth with his presence will be condemned to die at the hands of those who are appointed to uphold justice in society. The cross will take us to this bleak moment in time that shows us with clarity just how deeply sin has marred God's good creation. When in that moment, in condemning Jesus... Humanity will condemn itself. The world is demonstrating in this moment that we remember this week just how backward and broken it is. The world, though, will be more than just exposed that day. Its system will be defeated because Jesus will not topple the system in the same way that that system functions, with power and bloodshed, with violence and a fight. No, he doesn't fight fire with fire. He overcomes it with love. Oh, it demonstrated, this moment does, just how broken our world truly is, but it also demonstrates just how incomparable Jesus' love is. It demonstrates the amazing, incomparable nature of the love of God for us. The cross didn't just show me that the world is broken. It shows us just how good and loving and compassionate as Jesus is. And that's why here we don't point you towards a system. That's why here we don't celebrate a religion. That's why here we come to encounter a person. We come to be pointed back to a gracious, loving Redeemer and Savior. The cross, it condemns me. But it also shows me a Savior who loved me still. And he is our hope, not some system that we follow or adhere to. And to him, we look again today and say, Hosanna, save now. And so, Jesus, that is our prayer. Save now. Save us. Humbly, we say that we can't fix the mess that we're in. We can't fix our broken world. We, we can't fix the, the brokenness in this modern era, even this age, a post-COVID era, still a war-torn world a divided place, and even a divided country. God, we can't fix these things. Save now. Save us. But Jesus, we can't even fix ourselves. Save us from ourselves, from our sin, from our brokenness, from the rebellion that exists in our hearts. 
Jesus, Hosanna, Hosanna, we cry. Save us. Save us, Jesus.